0: if you would, and turn to Hebrews chapter 9. Before we get into the message this morning, I just wanted to mention something that if you read your uh, emails this week, you noticed uh, a change um, in our staff here at the church, uh, my wife has served as the pastoral secretary for a number of years here, and uh, she's done a great job through an unexpected pandemic and some other things. Uh, I appreciate all the help that she has been to me and now Pastor John as well. And uh, But there's a transition taking place uh, where uh, Jen McLean is now going to be serving and helping uh, pastors in this way. And I'm so thankful that she was interested and eager to do that. And so thankful for the way the Lord has used uh, my wife and anticipate the way the Lord's using Jen. Of course, they're both beyond their service in that way. They're both active, um, doing things in the church and other ways. So, uh, my wife will still be a pastor's wife with all the things that come along with that. But uh transitioning in part to help with uh, some education um opportunity that we have in our home with our homeschool group. And um just thankful that Jen is ready and able to take up the the reins of that task. Uh that doesn't mean you can't ask Abby questions, but it does mean that she may say, well, that's for Jen to answer. Um, so I know that'll be an adjustment for all of us in terms of communication and so forth. Uh, so if you didn't happen to get that email, you might want to just check through and, and see, uh, there's a new email address and, uh, for the uh, pastoral secretary that, uh, you should be getting emails from, especially the folks that are on zoom. Uh, the zoom links are coming now through that and any, any official emails from the church. I occasionally, but very rarely send one out from my personal uh, address unless it's personal. Um, But if it comes from or to the church, usually it's coming through the pastoral secretary and Pastor John as well uh, may send out from time to time uh, through that. So just wanted to mention that. And again, thank you ladies for your service. And um, when I ask you to look at uh, Hebrews chapter nine today, We've been in the book of Hebrews a couple of times, so we've been looking at the atonement, the subject of the atonement in Hebrews. Last time, we've spent some time early in this chapter, and I want to just read verses 11 through 14, and then into the rest of the chapter, which we'll be considering today. So starting in verse 11, Hebrews chapter 9 says but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead, but it is never, for it is never in force while the one who made it lives. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with the water and scarlet wool and hyssop, And sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. And according to the law, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood and without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. May the Lord bless the reading of his word to our hearts. Verse 15, for this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant. A mediator is a go-between. The new covenant that is being spoken of is the new covenant of Jeremiah 31. Ezekiel 36, other passages in the Old Testament that foretell a covenant that God would make with his people, contents of which we considered in chapter 8, that new covenant which as we come to the Lord's table, we're reminded of the promises of the new covenant, the purpose that God has in Christ to bless his people, certainly to save his people. But in verse 15, Jesus is, by his sacrifice, the mediator of a new covenant. So that, verse 15, since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. And so there's some beautiful truths, wonderful truths, just in verse 15 about the forgiveness of sins and the eternal inheritance that we have. There's an eternal inheritance. The promise is spoken of here, but it's the fulfillment of that promise, ultimately, that we will have because of the sacrifice and work of Christ as our mediator. There is grace upon grace in the gospel. There's certainly mercy, but there's grace upon grace. There are things that God has promised in the gospel that would be good to meditate on for the sake of just our joy as Christians. What does that inheritance look like? What will it be? Some time ago, we went through Romans chapter 8, which also speaks of our inheritance. You can certainly see other places in Scripture that speak about the fact that we are heirs together with Christ. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us is a statement of our inheritance in Christ. That inheritance involves an eternal city in which we will dwell. Stephen Marshall Puritan said, The prepared possession which was cast by God from all eternity, all the glory of heaven, such as I never saw, nor ever entered into the heart of man to conceive it, it is all kept to be the everlasting inheritance of all those that are called the Lord's children. Revelation 21, Twelve gates made of pearl. Twelve foundations made of precious stones. The names of the tribes in the one, the names of the apostles in the other. Streets paved with gold. Walls of jasper. The river, the water of life, the throne of God, the tree of life, the cherubim, the seraphim, all the other myriads of angels who serve and worship God. Just to be there, that's a part of our inheritance. But to be there along with others, there's a fellowship that we will enjoy there. Even the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 12, that when we come to that city, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, Mount Zion, that it is myriads of angels. And it's to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And of course, to God, the judge of all and the spirits of righteous men made perfect. So that fellowship with God and his people and all of those who have gone before us, the scripture characters, the people that we read about in the stories of faith in the scripture, those who believed God, believed in his promises. They died in faith. There's the apostles as well. New Testament named individuals, many unnamed. And then there's church history. And as time goes along, all those who have gone before us, all of the redeemed of all of the ages, all those who were martyred for the sake of Christ, those who gave their life for the publication of the word of God, many people you've never heard of who believed and trusted in Christ. Hebrews 11 speaks of just the ones in that chapter of men, as men of whom the world was not worthy. We're talking about myriads upon myriads of individuals who've been saved by the grace of God and came to God through one mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what will we do? We will reign with him. The apostles were told they would sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel in God's kingdom. Jesus said to one of the churches there in Revelation, He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. We will reign with Christ. We will judge angels, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And we'll do that in glory, where God will have resurrected us and given us an eternal and perfect body to endure forever. Paul writes in Philippians, "Our citizenship is in heaven, for which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state in conformity with the body of His glory." by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. And not only is it our body, but our spirit. There'll never be any desire to sin again. This is what Christ has done for us, what he has purchased for us, what we will inherit with him. Glory one day will be revealed in us when we are a part of the glorious liberty of the sons of God. And of course, the greatest thing of our inheritance, what Christ has done for us in bringing us from our miserable condition is not only has he brought us out of that and saved us, but he has brought us into fellowship with the eternal God. The Lord, David said in Psalm 16, is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. Psalm 73, whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Unbroken, unending fellowship with God in his presence because of Christ. Through Christ, our mediator, and certainly our sacrifice. Verse 15, it says, for this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant. What is the reason? It's drawing attention to the blood that he shed, the sacrifice that he made. And again, down through this passage, as you come to the end of it, verse 26, at the end of the verse, now once at the consummation of the ages, he's been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And there's another reference to it in verse 28. Christ also having been offered once to bear the sins of many. So Christ, our mediator and sacrifice. As you look at verse 15 and the following verses, there's a focus on the mediatorial death of Christ. For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a Death has taken place. Verse 16, for where a covenant is, there must necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead. And then in verse 18, the focus is on blood, the shedding of blood. It was a bloody death. So when we think about what Christ has done to obtain this inheritance, as he is the mediator of the new covenant, he laid down his life as a sacrifice and died in our place. And that death, of course, redeems us from our sins. And not only us, but as you look at verse 15, it's those who committed sins under that first covenant. Certainly that includes those in the Old Testament us as well as we think about having broken the laws of God. God, through Christ, paid the debt of our sins that we might be redeemed, purchased for God through Christ's death. And not only that our sins would be paid for, but notice the end of verse 15, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. So yes, our, our sins are forgiven, and that would be one thing just to have the the record uh, cleaned up and, and totally cleansed. But beyond that, there's also this inheritance that he has gained for us by his work on our behalf. So we have much reason to praise the Lord for Christ today. We have reason to give him praise because of his work upon the cross as a sacrifice for us to redeem us from our sins, and also by his work to guarantee that we might receive that wonderful inheritance. But has it ever occurred to you that death was necessary and for God to do what he did in Christ demanded the incarnation, demanded that Christ come in the flesh, Verse 16 ties this matter of death to the covenant, and it speaks of a particular kind of covenant. Verse 16, it says, for where a covenant is, there must be of necessity uh, be the death of the one who made it. And the word that's being used here sometimes is translated, depending on the translation uh, for covenant. It's sometimes translated will or testament. So we have the Old and New Testament. I don't believe that idea of a last will and testament can be applied in every way to what God has done. But I believe the author is using here an illustration that draws attention to the necessity of death prior to the inheritance being given. Notice that in verse 16, he says, for where a covenant is or where a testament is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. If you're thinking in terms of a last will and testament, this is an illustration. Jesus had to die in order for those benefits to be passed on. Verse 17, for a covenant is valid only when men are dead, for it is never enforced while the one who made it lives. So a will obviously could be changed. Uh, It can be changed multiple times until the person finally dies, and then whichever will is the valid will based upon date and signature and so forth, then that will is enforced. But the will isn't enforced until the person has died, the death certificate, so to speak, is produced. And what the writer here draws attention to is that there is a death, that death makes that covenant enforce Jesus as the mediator of a new covenant that death has taken place. And then he draws attention back to the first covenant. So We've been comparing, starting in chapter 8 and 9, the old covenant and the new covenant. And there's a similarity between the old covenant and the new covenant, and it has to do with death and even the shedding of blood. And this is where he makes that transition in verse 18, from just talking about death, now to the matter of blood and the necessity of blood being shed in the first covenant. And he says, therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. He's talking about the time, and he illustrates here very specifically by quoting from the passage, when Moses is with the children of Israel, they're at Mount Sinai, And the inauguration of the covenant that God is making with Israel involves sacrifices, bloody death of animals, and they're mentioned there in verse 19, and then a ritual or a process by which this covenant was now in force. Notice, as he gives the illustration, quoting from the book of Exodus, starting in verse 19, he says, for when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself, that would be the scroll on which the words were written, and all the people. So likely taking that hyssop, dipping it in the plant, sprinkling the book, sprinkling the people, the blood being applied from the sacrifice that had been made and the death of those animals. The death, the bloody death, was a part of the inauguration of that covenant. That's how a covenant became in force. A death took place. The blood was testimony to the death. And Moses said, verse 20, saying this is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. Now, there could be a thought based upon what this passage says and also what a covenant is, even in the context here, that, that we we really can't go in one direction with this. And that is that this this blood somehow spoke of the death of God himself. In the context, it's the death of Christ that's the sacrifice for the new covenant. So when the old covenant was made, why did those animals have to die? What did that signify? Did it signify the death of God? Some have even suggested that. But God cannot die. God is Immortal. In fact, we sing immortal, invisible, God-only wise. What are we singing? In part, that God is deathless. God is the source of life for all things. He cannot die. And what this points to, instead of the death of God, is actually the incarnation and death of Christ. That's really what all of the sacrifices of the Old Testament point to ultimately is Christ. Why did the lamb have to die? Why was the lamb or any other animal to be without blemish? This is looking forward to the lamb of God who would come to take away the sin of the world. And even in the first covenant, there was a picture of what God was going to do in Christ. That he had to die. So it's not as that first covenant is made and Moses is sprinkling the blood of that covenant upon the people, that's not a testimony to God dying. It's a testimony to Christ dying ultimately. And praise God, this was his plan. Stephen Charnock, in his work on the existence and attributes of God, said, among other things, as he's highlighting the death of Christ, God's son, which was a gift beyond any other gift that God has given, the greatest gift. He says of Christ, this son was given to rescue us by his death. It was a gift to us. For our sakes, he descended from his throne and dwelt on the earth. For our sakes, he was made flesh and infirm flesh. For our sakes, he was made a curse and scorched in the furnace of his father's wrath. For our sakes, he went naked, armed only with his own strength, into the lists of that combat with the devils that led us captive. Had he given him to be a leader for the conquest of some earthly enemies, it had been a great goodness to display his banners and to bring us under his conduct. But he, that is the father, sent him to lay down his life in the bitterest and most inglorious manner. And exposed him to a cursed death for our redemption from that dreadful curse, which would have broken us to pieces and have and irreparably have crushed us. He gave him to us to suffer for us as a man and redeem us as a God. To be a sacrifice to expiate our sin by translating the punishment upon himself, which was merited by us. So I say that what this points to is really the necessity, and the writer of Hebrews has talked about it before, the necessity of the incarnation, because God cannot die. But the God-man can and did die in our place, in spite of the fact that he was sinless. He died bearing our sins. He died as the Lamb of God, as John says, who takes away the sin of the world. And That doesn't mean that every person who ever lived is going to have their sins taken away. You must trust in Christ. You must become a child of God. You must believe in him. But when John said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, what he's drawing attention to is it's not only the people that he was preaching to, the Jews, it's also those from every tongue, tribe, and nation who believe in Christ, who will have salvation through him. And it was necessary for him to shed his blood. And I want to just encourage you to think about this as you look at verses 21 and 22. 22 states the principle, but 21 is the illustration of this reality that, There was blood that was shed, and there was blood that cleansed. Look at verse 21. It says, in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. So when you look at the consecration of Aaron as a priest in the tabernacle and his sons, or you look at the tabernacle itself, and as they set that apart for the service of God, there were sacrifices and blood applied. When he says they are the vessels of the ministry, he's talking about those things within the tabernacle that were, were cleansed with blood. Why? Because they were in contact with sinners. It was sinners who were living in the tabernacle and doing what they were doing in the tabernacle. Yes, they were Levites, but they were no more holy than any other person. And so anything that man touched, anything that man used because of his sinfulness had to be cleansed. And then he says in verse 22, according to the law, one may almost say, all things are cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. It is interesting, as you look through the Old Testament, when he says almost here, if you look at the ritual cleansing, whether it was the tabernacle or other things, most things, not everything, but most things were ritually cleansed by blood. We're not talking about an actual somehow removal of sin from objects. It was a testimony to man's sinfulness. And if you were to look through the Old Testament, you will see that purification or cleansing most of the time took place through blood. Sometimes it was just the washing of water. So if someone became unclean according to God's commandments sometimes it was they had to not go to the tabernacle but they had to wash themselves with water in one case in numbers instruments of war were cleansed by fire they were that's how they were ritually cleansed but notice the principle at the end of verse 22 and this is what he's been drawing attention to without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness A death is necessary, and a bloody death is necessary. Now, there's one interesting illustration from Leviticus. If you turn back to Leviticus chapter 5. Leviticus chapter 5 going through sacrifices for the guilt offering. You can see in the context, just read verse 10, the second he shall then prepare as a burnt offering according to the ordinance, so the priest shall make atonement on his behalf for his sin, which he has committed, and it will be forgiven him. So that's the context. It's sin, guilt, forgiveness, forgiveness. In the first part of the chapter, blood is being shed. But in verse 11, it says, But if his means are insufficient for two turtle doves or two young pigeons, then for his offering for that which he has sinned, he shall bring the tenth of an ephah of fine flour for a sin offering. He shall not put oil on it or place incense on it, for it is a sin offering. He shall bring it to the priest, and the priest shall take his handful of it as his memorial portion and offer it up in smoke on the altar. So what's happening here is instead of a bloody sacrifice, this person is bringing a tenth of an ephah of flour. It's like a day's portion of flour to make bread for a person to eat for the day. That's all this person can afford. They can't afford two turtle doves. They can't afford what the law specified. They certainly can't afford a lamb. All they can afford is the flour. But as they bring the flour and they give it to the priest, and the priest takes a portion of it, but then it says he takes that flour and he offers it up, middle of verse 12, in smoke upon the altar. Look at the rest of the verse with the offerings of the Lord by fire. It is a sin offering. So this flower was then mixed with the blood of other offerings, the sacrifice that someone else had given. Blood was still necessary in that case. For someone who didn't have an animal whose blood had to be shed, their there requirement was that they bring flour that would then be a part of that sacrifice and if you've ever seen flour burn it lights up and that sacrifice would be lit up in part by the flour that was brought Andrew Bonar writes on Leviticus 5 he says the Lord descends even to the poorest of all those who had no land to spare He provides for the Lazaruses of Israel and the widows who have but two mites remaining in the very spirit of love wherein Jesus spoke of them. It is Jesus who, as Jehovah, arranges these types for the comfort of his afflicted people. In other words, there's a sense in which they're contributing to a sacrifice that does have blood. Shedding of blood is necessary. A death is necessary. You might say, why is it necessary? Well, it's certainly necessary because God commands it, but it's necessary because of the punishment of sin. God hates sin. And how does God deal with sin? Well, every time someone offered a sacrifice in the Old Testament, even in that one, there's the shedding of blood. In that one, it's the flower combined with the shedding of blood of an animal, but it's bloodshed, bloodshed, bloodshed. A death has to take place. And of course, it's all pointing to the death of the Son of God and his blood shed to wash away our sins what can wash away my sin nothing but the blood of jesus what can make me whole again nothing but the blood of jesus oh precious is the flow that makes me white as snow no other fount i know nothing but the blood of jesus It's not your works. It's not your good deeds. It's not your church attendance. It's not your baptism. None of that makes you clean. It's the blood of the mediator. It's his sacrifice on your behalf. If you understand that, you are blessed. There are many, many in this world who do not understand that. In the early 1900s William Borden traveled around the world. He was uh, about 18 years old and his mother instead of sending him immediately to college sent him on a trip with a man named Walter Erdman, Christian man who just kind of was his chaperone guide as he went around the world and when William got to India, he wrote to his mother, and he describes a temple. And as he describes this temple, it's a Madura temple. He says, the Madura temple has five large gopur, which are over 200 feet high and four smaller ones. The outside of these structures is a solid mass of carved stone images of Hindu gods. Inside the wall is another enclosure with its gopur, and inside this is a sacred place, which none but the Hindus are allowed to enter. The rest of the space is taken up with the bazaars, priest quarters, etc. The interior of the temple contains many images and corridors with wonderful stone monoliths. In the center, the tank of the golden lilies. I'm sure I didn't discover any appropriateness about the name. The water was covered with green slime, and yet pilgrims were washing themselves in it, as well as drinking from it. It is supposed to wash away their sins. And what he was watching was people, not just there, but elsewhere, who were trying to deal with their sin. In fact, Walter Erdman said to him at one point, India's millions are doing their best to wash away their sins, not realizing that Christ has already done it. You can't wash away your sins in a river not in the tank of golden lilies. You can't wash away your sins even by the sacrifices of the Old Testament. That really wasn't ever God's purpose. And the writer of Hebrews specifies that the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sins. It's only the blood of Jesus Christ. Without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So when he shed his blood, when he died upon the cross... The piercing of his hands and his feet and the scourging of his back. Crown of thorns in his head. All of that. And obviously as a testimony ultimately to his death, that is what takes care of our sin. That is what redeems us from our sin. Nothing that you or I can do can take away our sin. Christ alone. And he did it. Are you thankful? Are you grateful? Have you praise God for the salvation that he has provided through his son who has shed his blood for you, for me. Verse 23 says, therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So when he says the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed, he's talking about the tabernacle, that the tabernacle was cleansed by the blood. But now in verse 23, at the end of the verse, he says, but with the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. And obviously he's talking about the sacrifice of Christ. Verse 24, for Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands. That's the earthly tabernacle. He says a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. And here's where Christ by his sacrifice, certainly mediated the new covenant, but he also, he mediates uh, God's grace to us as he enters into heaven for us and on our behalf as our mediator. Notice the language there, the end of the verse, now to appear in the presence of God for us. So his Work of mediation, yes, took place upon the cross, but he rose again from the dead and entered into heaven, and there he is, as Hebrews says, he's the forerunner who has entered there before us. In fact, that very term forerunner ought to give us encouragement because if he's the forerunner, that means that we're also going to go there if we trust in him. The one who runs before us has entered first. He's our man in glory, as someone said. A human being, yes, he's the God-man, but a man has entered into the presence of God. Sin has been paid for, and he's appearing there now for us. And that, of course, gives us the hope, what? That we, too, will be in God's presence. That inheritance that he has purchased for us, will be given to us and granted to us in Christ. Now, as you look through verse 24, when it says Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, that's obviously talking about the earthly tabernacle, a mere copy of the true one. But he enters into heaven. And what does he do? Well, Verse 23 speaks about cleansing the things that are on earth, but he also talks about cleansing things in heaven. And there are different ideas exactly as to exactly what is going on here. Uh, Why would things need to be cleansed in the heavens? Some suggest, well, that's where Satan sinned. That's where Satan said, I will be like the most high. He was in the heaven. He sinned there. And so Christ's work of cleansing has to be applied to that place where Satan was. There's also the reality of sinners in heaven. If someone leaves this life, and goes into the presence of God prior to the resurrection of Christ and his entrance into heaven. Some suggest that the heavenly things refers to those sinners who are there who are now cleansed because of Christ. And I think it's better to understand it a little differently. It's connected to that thought are there things in heaven that need to be cleansed we're thinking of when we think about the tabernacle the shadows of the things in heaven well what is that substance in heaven that the shadow represents for instance what's the tabernacle it's it's the shadow but what's the substance that that represents is there like a building like that in heaven we know there are angels in heaven, Like we're depicted in the tabernacle. I think the best explanation is given by a commentator, a number of different books in scripture, but F.F. Bruce, as he spoke about this passage, says it this way. If we envisage the heavenly dwelling place of God in something like material terms, we shall find ourselves trying to explain the necessity for its cleansing in ways which are far from the author's intention. The people of God are the house of God. His dwelling place is in their midst. It is they who need inward cleansing, not only that their approach to God may be free from defilement, but that they may be a fit habitation for him just as the tabernacle in the wilderness together with its furniture had to be anointed and sanctified that God might manifest his presence there among his people and they might serve him there so the people of God themselves need to be cleansed and hallowed in order to become a dwelling place of God in the spirit and he references Ephesians chapter 2 verse 22 but even if we didn't go outside of Hebrews we could look back at chapter 3 and see that we are God's house. Moses was a servant in the house. Christ is a son over the house. And then he says, whose house we are. We are the temple of God. He comes to inhabit us. We're the ones who are in need of cleansing. And as you read beyond Hebrews, yes, you can go back to Ephesians chapter 2, where he says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the spirit. God dwells with his people. He dwells within his people. We are the temple of the living God. And obviously there's implications there for us to be holy. Verse 24, for Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. He's contrasting again the sacrifice of Christ and the offering of Christ with the Old Testament high priest offering year after year. And we've talked about this as we looked at previous part of the chapter. Why did that high priest have to year by year, year by year, year by year offer the sacrifice? once for himself, then for the sins of the people, why did it just keep on going like that? Why did a high priest go throughout his whole life if he was obedient, offering that sacrifice, and then when he retired from service, the next person came and also did it? Well, in part because it was ineffective. It never actually accomplished the cleansing of the people, but when when Christ came and offered himself once, It was just that one time that it was affected. And that's what 26 draws attention to. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer since the foundation of the world. But now once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin, to take away sin by the sacrifice of himself. This is a wonderful truth that just the one sacrifice of Christ was sufficient to deal with our sin, to put it away, to take it away. The word is a word that means to set aside. The word annulment is a similar idea, which is the canceling of something. In this case, the canceling of our debt the canceling of our sin against God. Imagine having a debt that you could not repay, and then someone came and said, I'm going to take care of all of that, and they do it. And now there is no debt at all. It has been washed and completely taken away. That burden has been lifted. And that's what Christ has done for us. Burdens, yes, are lifted at Calvary the burden of all of your sin the one that the one uh, the, the sin that you know about the sin that you don't know about the sins that you committed in the past the sins that may never encourage us to but the sins that are 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 yet to be done by us all of our sin canceled in Christ annulled by Christ's sacrifice that sin has been canceled that's why wesley spoke of God breaking the power of canceled sin, setting the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. And when he canceled that sin, when he dealt with the sin, when he bore that sin in our place, what did he do? Again, not only did he deal with the sin, but he, he granted the promise of that inheritance and ultimately fellowship with God himself. I don't know that we can understand the enormity of that, the significance of that. I like Chris Anderson's hymn, Drawn Near Through Christ. In Eden's bliss, we walked with God, unhindered by the curse. Yet we rebelled and were expelled, estranged, alone, perverse, Two mighty cherubs barred the path to Eden's holy place. No more could men, now stained by sin, behold our Maker's face. Beneath the law we sought the Lord through sacrifice and priest. One time each year, one man in fear sought God with blood of beast. Still mighty cherubs blocked the way so sinners could not pass. In curtains sewn on golden throne, they stopped the rebel fast. Then Christ appeared to clear the way. To God, for sinful man, fulfilled the law without a flaw, our temple priest and lamb. Astounded cherubs stepped aside, each hid his flaming sword with nail and thorn. The veil was torn, drawn near through Christ the Lord. Praise God, we have access. And the last stanza says, in Jesus' name, we boldly come before the throne of grace with empty hand in Christ's We stand to seek Almighty's face till saints and cherubs join in awe around the Savior's throne. With one great voice, we will rejoice. All praise to Christ alone. This is the work of our mediator on our behalf to shed his blood, to cleanse us, to wash us to grant us access into the presence of God. Notice verses 27 and 28 quickly. It says, Inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear for a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. What here is spoken of, again, is the death but ultimately, in the context, it's the death of Christ. There's only one death that is necessary. After this comes judgment. We, we tend to apply this as a principle. Sometimes we share this with people that there really are no second chances. When a person dies, that is it. You will face God in judgment. And we can certainly see that uh, teaching in God's word. And we need to be prepared for death because we know we are going to meet God. But he's applying this principle to Christ, who died once, never to die again. There's no need for his death to be repeated. His singular sacrifice was effective, notice what it says, verse 28, to bear the sins of many. He's offered once to bear the sins of many. That's a reference, I believe, to Isaiah 53, where he says, therefore I will allot him a portion with the great and he will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. When it says many, of course, each one of us individually has many sins. When it comes to those who believe in Christ, all of their sins paid for, all of their sins borne by Christ himself. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. That burden and that weight fell upon him. And in those moments of darkness in the, on the cross, he's crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there's the sin bearer who's taking upon him all the weight of that sin, that separation, at least in those moments of his fellowship with the Father because he's bearing your sins and mine if we believe in Christ. And he's doing so effectively. His sacrifice was effective. How do we know that? Well, he did say it is finished. He did say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He did rise from the dead. He did ascend into heaven. He is there as our mediator. But what the writer of Hebrews draws attention to at the end of this chapter is that he's coming again for those who eagerly await him. This is a statement of faith and trust, a confident expectation that Christ is coming again to finally save us and rescue us from all that we have done all of our sins. It'll be the consummation, you might say, of our salvation. We've already been saved by his death upon the cross, but we are saved in hope. We haven't seen the fullness of our salvation yet, but we will. We will. And are you trusting in that? This is a testimony to the effectiveness of his sacrifice, that he will come without reference to sin. The end of verse 28 specifies that it doesn't have to do with his dealing with sin at that point. Sin has been dealt with. It's been cleared out of the way. And we're washed and we're cleansed and we can eagerly await our Lord. You know, when you see in the New Testament, the expectation for the coming of Christ. There are those who will be ashamed before him at his coming. He says that in the Gospels, but there are also those who delight in his coming. They're looking forward to his coming. They are in Christ. They're trusting in him. They know their sins are forgiven. He's going to come. That's what he said in Philippians chapter three and verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. First Corinthians 1, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God, which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you are enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you're not lacking in any gift, eagerly awaiting the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's part of the reason that we are looking forward to his coming is that we know he's not going to deal with us for our sins. He's already done that on the cross. So we can anticipate his coming with great joy. That's what Titus chapter 2 speaks of as well. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. And as he comes, who is that one? He's our mediator. He offered himself as a sacrifice for us to pay the debt of our sins, to purchase redemption for us, to ransom us from our sins, to wash us, to cleanse us. But Titus says, to purify us himself a people for his own possession. He did that to purchase us. And we belong to him. He's coming for his own. I was talking with my dad recently. He'd been listening to a message on John chapter 17. And the speaker asked the question, When Christ talks about us in his prayers, how does he think about us? How does he think about his people? How does he think about his own? And you read John chapter 17, and you just listen to how Jesus talks about his disciples and about those who would come to believe on him through their witness. And this speaker was saying, which I think the context and the teaching of John 17 bears this out. What Christ thinks about his people is that they are a gift to him from his father. God's people are a gift to Christ from his father. And he delights in them. That's how he thinks about us. Why did he do all this? To purchase for himself a people for his own possession. He even prayed that they would be with him forever where he is in the presence of God. What a blessing to know that. What a joy to have communion with God through Christ as our mediator. And what a joy it is to remember him and to remember what he's done for us on the cross. I hope that's your joy today. Let's pray. Lord, as we ponder what you have done for us in the incarnation and the atonement, we are amazed. We are blessed. We pray that we might be energized to tell the good news to every person we can, good news about Jesus Christ. That all might hear, might come to know you and enjoy fellowship with you. We thank you, Lord, for your mercy upon us, poor sinners, that you would enrich us in such a way through Christ. We don't know how to thank you, but we do thank you. And as we take time to observe this table today, we pray that we might do so in a manner that's pleasing to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.